from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello there, listeners. Welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. It's great to be back. It was a great break, and we are glad to be back in the saddle. What's been going on with y'all? It's been a long six months since we were last together, and I am sure nothing of huge significance or importance has happened. Ha! Ah, ah, I'm joking, of course. If you're listening to this around the time of recording, most of the world is still on lockdown in response to the COVID-19 crisis. But there are signs of hope on the horizon. Vaccines are rolling out across the globe. Some places are starting to slowly reopen. And here's hoping, that's me knocking on wood, that for season four, that we'll be back in person generally and also for the show. And on that note, that also means that likely all of the guests that you're going to hear on this season will likely be recorded, you guessed it, via Zoom or something similar. But I think we managed to have a good time anyway. Listen, before we introduce today's guest, y'all know the drill. If you're not already, subscribe to the show and like and follow us on LinkedIn and share it with someone you think might like it. It might not sound like much, but it really helps new listeners find the show. And if you want to give us a boost, leave us a five-star review and comment on your podcasting platform of choice. All right, let's get into it. As many of you have undoubtedly heard, the ICC court has elected a new president, and her name is Claudia Solomon. Claudia will assume her position in July of this year, and she succeeds Alexi Moore in this position. So, Claudia is out here making all kinds of history and shattering glass ceilings left and right, and she becomes the first woman to hold the position and brings a unique and dynamic perspective into the position. Claudia and I sat down recently and had a fascinating conversation on her early career and changing specializations midway through it, climbing the ranks in the world of private practice, the importance of diversity and inclusion in modern practice, and, well, the thought process that takes one to applying to become the president of the ICC court. So, I think you'll learn a lot from this talk. She was an absolute delight to have in the digital studio, and we look forward to celebrating with her as she assumes this new role. So, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Claudia Solomon, and we'll see you on the other side. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Listeners, welcome back. First episode of season three. It has been a long six months. I'm sure nothing of great global or international importance happened in the time since we last saw each other. But before we get into those things, before we talk about all the things that could have gone on since last fall, I have a very special guest with me today, a woman named Miss Claudia Solomon. Claudia, welcome to the show. Chris, thank you so much for having me. Great. And so if 
you know, if you hadn't heard the news that's come out since the last time we saw each other, listeners, Claudia is the incoming president of the ICC Court of Arbitration, and she's been so gracious to stop into the digital studio today to talk. So, Claudia, we're going to start with the questions that whether it's you're in season one, season two, or now season three, I start with all my guests. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Uh, thank you so much, Chris. I am just thrilled to be here. To start with who I am without defining that by what I do and where I'm from, Sure. I hope I get described as somebody who is curious, uh, someone who believes that problems can be solved, and that I have a profound sense that... Uh, quoting the Joan Baez song, you know, there but for fortune, which is often described as there but for the grace of God go I. Wow. No, that's, <laughs> I got to say that is a very profound start to um, to season three. Um, and speaking of that curiosity, let's, uh, let's rewind even further. Where are you from, Claudia? I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, my parents were from Brooklyn. We were the only Jewish family in my neighborhood and the only Jewish family in the public schools that I attended. And then I returned back to Richmond after law school and worked uh, quick chronology a few years in Richmond, went to Phoenix, Arizona, uh, then spent three years in Prague in the Czech Republic and moved to New York in 2005 where I've been for over 16 years. Very cool. No, and there, I mean, there's a lot to in, unpack there. Um, longtime listeners to the show may recall that uh, although I'm from the great state of South Carolina, our family actually hails from New York, not Brooklyn, but the Bronx uh, over there in Co-op City. So um, good to see a fellow. Well, I say fellow New Yorker. A New Yorker is represented on the show today. Um, OK, so from Richmond, Virginia, did you go to law school in Virginia as well? I didn't. I went to Harvard Law School and undergrad, I was at Brandeis uh, University, also in Boston. So I spent six years in the Boston area and I spent my junior year abroad at Oxford in Somerville College, which was then all women and then uh, went co-ed after I spent my year there. Okay. So your international interest, it sounds like started uh, at a pretty early on in your life, um, even in college. I think so. And, and what, what do you think took you there? I mean, was it just kind of an innate interest in all things international or what was the kind of the curiosity, so to speak, that took you there or made you want to do that? I was very interested in the world larger than my neighborhood, larger than uh, my public schools. And that was definitely something that was instilled from my parents uh, with my grandparents being immigrants. But I wasn't somebody who was interested in international law. I didn't take international law classes in law school, and I didn't study international arbitration. I was actually very focused on local government law and the intersection of law and politics. Then I went back to Richmond, focused on representing localities and uh, addressing voting rights issues before anyone had heard of a chad and that was a hot topic in law schools sure no that that's interesting so there wasn't uh you know the lifelong lawyer sort of desire and, and it was kind of 
this interest in, I guess, the public sector that kind of drew, drew you there? Is that right? Well, actually, I went to Arizona in 2001 because my husband was in graduate school there. Sure. And I was a fourth year associate and interviewed with a lot of different firms, uh, thinking that I didn't need to just replicate what I was doing in Richmond in Arizona. And the head of litigation at one of the firms I interviewed with said that international arbitration was the wave of the future. And it was my introduction to the concept of international arbitration and it resonated with me. It made sense in a context in which we were talking about more cross-border business and more cross-border disputes that would necessarily arise. And I thought that's something I want to get involved in and have the opportunity per to pursue. Okay. So, all right. I think we've got it at least so far. Okay. We've got Richmond. We've got ties in Brooklyn. We've got you now in Arizona. And then, and then back to the, the East Coast. Well, okay, so we talk about this sort of foray into international arbitration now. I think you mentioned the Czech Republic. How did that come to be? What was that all about? That was really the transformation of my practice from a general litigation practice with a little bit of international arbitration to full-time international arbitration in starting in October 2001. And at that point, my law firm was hired by the Czech Republic to represent it in what was then, I believe, the largest investment treaty arbitration, the Saluka versus Czech Republic case. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there wasn't anyone in Prague who had experience with these this type of work or managing such a large case. So I was asked to go on five days notice, originally for a month, and I stayed in Prague for three years and then handled international arbitration cases all over Europe. Wow. I mean, that's uh, well, what an adventure that must have been. Um, so you were there, you stayed there for some years. Um, did you only do investment arbitration in that time or did you also do some commercial work? I did investment treaty arbitration and commercial arbitration. Uh, we handled two cases for the Czech Republic. And then I handled a really wide variety of international commercial cases. Uh, I remember one day flying from Dublin to Athens to meet with two different clients. At that point, that was as far as you could go in the Eurozone. And that last summer I was there, I had hearings in Stockholm, Vienna, and London three hearings and three, on three different, so a really diversified practice and it transformed my work. Well, sure. Okay. So that, I mean, again, that's, that's quite the story from even, you know, up to that point. So after the Czech Republic, what, what comes next? I mean, what is the, the, the next step that Claudia Solomon took at that time? I realized I was getting potentially pigeonholed as a Central European specialist when I was hoping to be an international arbitration specialist and knew that Prague was not going to be a major seat or center for international arbitration in the near future. And so determined that I needed or wanted to have a next stage in my career in a major arbitration center 
and made a determination to come back to the United States and have my practice in New York. Okay. And then you, you come to New York and clearly we're able to sort of make that jump right into being a, the international arbitration specialist. Um, I, I wonder, and you know, this is something we'll talk about, you know, in a little bit, I guess, more in depth. What, what types of things did you do in making that transition from, um, from the Czech Republic to New York to, to kind of try and shift that branding or that messaging about how you wanted yourself to be perceived in the field? Sure. At that point, I was a senior associate, so I didn't have a book of business, as it were, to make a change to a major law firm and come in at a partner level. And the, I would say my initial search was focused on law firms that already had established international arbitration practices. But those firms already had their uh, teams, as it were, or their hierarchies or their pyramid of associates funneling into the partner level. And it really was a recruiter who introduced me to DLA uh, and at the end of 2004, when I was doing my search, I wasn't even aware that there was this three-way merger in the works that was creating at that point, one of the largest law firms in the world, which was joining you know, DLA based in uh, London, Piper Marbury on the East Coast and Gray Carey on the West Coast of the United States. And so it was an opportunity for me to come into a firm that had committed to national practices and build an international arbitration practice. And I was somebody who, you know, had worked in Europe, had worked with civil law, and could really be that bridge that they were looking for in the United States. And we started from the ground up in a lot of respects at that point. Uh, the newly formed DLA Piper Rudnick Great Carey didn't even have international arbitration on their webpage. And we had to <laughs> identify who within this newly formed global law firm had the requisite experience, what types of experience they had, how could we think about getting the firm's reputation in this space built and uh, get and get new cases. Well, sure. I mean, so it's kind of, you know, almost swinging, you know, well, one, you got into the ground floor of this kind of exciting new venture, right? Um, but, but similarly, you also were able to kind of swing the pendulum back the other way from doing, you know, investment treaty arbitration to now something that is squarely commercial. That's what it sounds like anyway. Well, at DLA Piper, I really had a very varied international arbitration practice. Sure. I did a significant number of investment treaty cases and then also handled a wide variety of international commercial arbitration cases. And now with you know, my future role with the ICC court, it is, uh, uh, the ICC has about 20% of their cases involving states and state-owned entities, although most of those cases are, in fact, commercial arbitrations. There are a significant number of arbitrations under the ICC rules that are investment treaty cases as well. 
Sure. And, you know, we'll talk just one more moment about uh, this commercial sort of investment sort of dichotomy. Um, what are, in your mind, what are, what are some of the major differences that I guess you see in, like, I guess, day to day, the type of practitioner that does mostly commercial or mostly investment? Or, you know, what are the, some of the major differences you see between those two lines of work? Well, at Latham and Watkins, where I was for eight years as the global co-chair of the practice, we were very focused on not having a clear line for practitioners. In other words, uh, partners and associates were able to work on both international commercial arbitration cases and investment treaty cases. We thought that was valuable for people's practices and for the clients that they served. So we tried not to have people get too siloed in their experiences. Sure. No, and I, yeah, I think that that makes sense. Um, and, you know, as we find ourselves now here in 2021, that's almost, you know, you can't just be siloed into one thing. There are lots of different uh, avenues that one can take. Um, so shifting just a bit um, and to go back to something that you mentioned just a moment ago and something we talked about at the outset. And I think the 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 sort of not elephant in the room, but just the the thing that I think it would be very obvious at this point, your new role um, at the ICC. Let's start at the very beginning. Um, what was it that made you uh, apply for such a such a role? I mean, you know, it's you know, to use a kind of sports analogy, it's kind of like. Um, you know, someone that's a general manager of a team saying, I think I want to be commissioner of the of FIFA or the NBA. Okay. <laughs> you know, what, 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 what was it that made you uh, decide to go down that path? I have been involved with the ICC for most of my career that has been focused on international arbitration. And I really do believe in the ICC as the the right arbitral institution uh, for the time. And so I was really ready at the stage of my career for an executive role and thought that I had the experience and the vision for to contribute in a significant way as the president of the ICC Corp. No, that's um, that, that's a great answer, and it, it resonates. And one of the things that you said was that you mentioned vision. Now, you know, I, I've never applied to be president of the ICC court or anything similar, <laughs> but I would assume, um, kind of what you've just mentioned, that when one applies for such a role, that you do have an idea or a vision or something similar that you might see for not just your own role, but importantly for the organization that you're um, applying to lead. What are some of the things that you can talk about or that you can share about how you imagine that um, that vision or that role for the ICC? Well, I am very fortunate to step into the role in July with a very strong uh, foundation uh, that Alexi Moore, as the current president, has uh, taken significant steps to strengthen the legitimacy of international arbitration generally and strengthen uh, ICC arbitration. And the new rules just came out at the beginning of the year, and those significantly contribute in that respect. The ICC will have its centenary in 2023. It was uh, as the court was founded in 1923 after the ICC itself was founded a few years earlier. 
the ICC is the leading international arbitration institution. And it is really my role as the president of the ICC court to assure that it remains the leader in its next centenary. So what does that mean at a really granular level? I think about that in two respects. The first is ultimately when parties are entering into a contract and they are drafting their dispute resolution clause and they have to make that decision. Of course, first, are they going to choose arbitration? And assuming they are, which arbitral institutions' rules are they going to choose? What is going to make them say, I insist on ICC arbitration when there are legitimately good alternatives? And the second category that I'm really focused on is the parties in the arbitration's experience in the arbitration itself. Once the arbitration has started, what is their experience starting with the filing of the arbitration or even before that, trying to figure out information about the arbitration process and their day-to-day -day interactions with the secretariat and with the arbitration tribunal. In other words, the client experience. And in my mind, it is time for the arbitration community to focus on clients and have a client mindset. The legal community went through this transformation 25 or so years ago. You know, uh, before, back in the day, you know, bills could say fee for service, $10,000 or fee for service, $100,000. That is unacceptable in almost everywhere around the world. Sure. Clients expect so much more information. Uh, clients expect uh, to have an understanding uh, about uh, uh, the ability to track their fees. Uh, you, Chris, I'm sure at Baker Hughes have outside counsel guidelines that are quite detailed, probably a list of pet peeves that uh, Baker Hughes lawyers have had in the past that they don't want to experience in the future. And in the international arbitration world, we use the phrase users. Uh, we don't even talk about the parties in arbitration as the institution or the tribunal's clients. And I think changing that mindset and thinking about their experience and arbitral institutions as a service sector will uh, shape the way the ICC operates and how international arbitration operates in the future. No, that, that's great. And that, that is as, as a user or a client of international arbitration, um, that, that's really encouraging to hear. Uh, you know, Claudia, and to some extent, it kind of almost, when I hear that sort of language, it kind of almost reminds me of sort of the shift that happened in the late 80s or um, early 90s in management schools where it became very client focused um, for certain business models, whether that be Apple or um, for restaurant folks, Chick-fil-A or, you know, these types of experiences or even Starbucks, you know, these types of experiences that really want to say, you know, we 
from end to end, from the time you walk in to even when you've left and you're just thinking about the brand, you think about um, how good they made you feel while you were getting the service. Um, and that's kind of what it sounds like you're describing here. Exactly. I believe parties will choose ICC arbitration because they believe that the institution reflects their values, which is quality product, and that they feel a connection to the institution and that they know the service is second to none. Sure. And, um, and I guess that, that kind of segues nicely um, to, to other things that are important for, for, for a lot of clients um, across the, the planet. Um, it's, you know, for those that are historians, but perhaps maybe hadn't noticed this specific fact, um, Claudia, you're going to be the first woman in your role um, as ICC court president. How does that, as we have this conversation about diversity, inclusion, and representation, how does that reality impact you and, I guess, for the organization, diversity and how it carries that conversation forward in both the diversity and both the gender context and ethnic context? I'll answer that question by saying that diversity in international arbitration is an absolute key priority for me. Our clients, meaning the parties in international arbitration, expect the international arbitration community to reflect them, and we have an imperative to do so. And there has been a focus on gender diversity with some incredibly good improvements, but we have a long way to go in that respect. And I'm glad that the conversation has become so much broader to focus on race and ethnic diversity, geographic diversity, age diversity, and it's imperative that we also think about it even more broadly, including LGBT diversity and diversity, uh, I'm sorry, disability inclusion as well. Sure. No, and I, I think that those are all important uh, uh, important conversations to have. Um, and we've seen, frankly, I mean, from things like the pledge to the launch of the organization, uh, racial equality for arbitration lawyers and a litany of other groups like that. Um, and so it's good to know that um, it sounds like the ICC will be continuing to, to take that flag forward too. Absolutely. Um, and, and similar, kind of going right along those lines, um, one of the things that we've seen a huge emphasis on, especially as um, we've gone from the before times, before COVID, to this, uh, this sort of reality where a lot of us are working from home. Um, we've noticed uh, that there is this shift or maybe this attention being paid to greener arbitrations or greener sort of dispute resolution mechanisms, um, which becomes more evident as... We're not traveling to conferences every week or not traveling to hearings every week. Um, I, I'm curious and would love to know some about, I guess, how this push towards greener arbitrations, being less, uh, having less of a carbon imprint, a carbon footprint, might impact the ICC going forward. I think what the pandemic has done is change our assumptions. Our assumptions in international arbitration was we had to physically be present and if you weren't, there had to be a justification why. So if a witness or an expert couldn't attend a, a hearing in person, meaning physically being in the same room as the others, there had to be 
an argument made as to why that person couldn't attend and why it would be okay to examine that witness or expert remotely. Now I think the conversation has shifted to say, do we need to be in person? And if so, why? And that's good uh, because there will be, and there are important uh, times when we should be together uh, physically in the same space. Uh, and it's just shifting those assumptions, but those assumptions have had to shift in other ways too. Um, I served on the task force for reducing time and costs in international arbitration. And at that point, the only way to participate in that task force was to physically be in the room in Paris while the discussions were taking place. Wow. There wasn't even a mechanism to participate via phone in front or by video. And it seems so obvious now, but that was something that was a big game changer at the time. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, probably something you may have seen too over this past year is just uh, we, I think all of us at some point have, or maybe still have a closet or part of our offices that are dedicated to old bundles <laughs> and stacks of paper. We turns out you can actually condense a lot of that into a zipped folder. And, you know, if you've got a good tablet, you can kind of scroll through those things quickly. Um, you know, I I wonder if that's something that will be continued to carry forward. You know, do we need to be printing all these books and bundles and have, you know, trolleys full of paper in future hearings? I personally have changed my practices. I was used to having printouts for each ICC court plenary session or even committee session. Uh, and I have through in the last year, all of my systems for handling that all electronically. And now in the cases in which I'm serving as arbitrator, I only want the documentation electronically. Sure. Um, well, and you know, uh, before we shift uh, away from the ICC too much, I mean, I, I just out of, out of curiosity, I mean, you know, one moment you go from someone that interacts with the ICC as a, as an attorney or client or user on the outside, so to speak, to now, I mean, going to be the, the, the president of the court. I mean, is there like now a secret handshake? Is there like a, a special secret code or something that one gets when they get on the other side? Or what, what has been, the, I guess, the, the, the biggest difference, I guess, now when you were getting ready to apply to where you stand now, if any? Well, I'm still in the transition process. I will take office July 1st, so maybe I can uh, tell you what the secrets are once I have the opportunity to learn them. <laughs> no, that, that's fair enough. I, I don't want to know. I don't want the Illuminati coming after me. <laughs> um, you know, one question that I have is, you know, we kind of get ready to... Um, uh, to, to shift just a bit, Claudia, is that, you know, and this is a, a theme that we had during season two. And I, I thought I think it was pretty interesting. The answers we got what I would like you to take out your crystal ball, so to speak. And, you know, in just purely hypothetical terms, what developments or bold predictions would you have for the international arbitration community over? You know, I guess we can talk about year, five years, how, whatever time span you want to put on any bold predictions that you see for the field. Uh if anybody had predicted 
18 months ago that we would be talking via video <laughs> and uh, headset uh, most of our days, uh, they would have been prescient. But my bold prediction, as it were, is, and I'm not sure it's so bold, is technology is going to continue to be an essential element of arbitration and we're going to embrace it even more. Uh, it is an essential tool and I don't believe we're in any way utilizing the technology that's actually out there to make arbitration more efficient and meet the needs of the parties who are in disputes. Sure. So I think we're going to see bold transformations in the utilization of technology. I also think that we're going to see a more diverse arbitration community at all levels. I, I think you're right on both fronts. Um, and, you know, at least once a season now, you know, listeners will know this is when I, I, I worry. At what point, how many years do we have, Claudia, until there's a robo um, robo arbitrator that is deciding all of these things and that, you know, all of us counsel users, everyone is just replaced by uh, AI and technology. I mean, um, we've seen such rapid developments. I mean, any thoughts about how um, AI and machine learning might impact uh, the work that the ICC does? Uh, well, Richard Suskin is certainly giving some incredibly interesting talks on that topic, and I recommend his book to everyone in the international arbitration space. I don't think that we are at risk of losing our jobs as decision makers, but the concept of predictive justice is incredibly interesting, and there's likely a place for it in the future. And we need to think about that a lot more closely and figure out the ways in which it can help parties who want to resolve their dispute in that way, who are otherwise stymied from resolving their disputes through the systems that otherwise exist. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think that I'm still going to have this reoccurring nightmare, though. Uh, you know, I walk in the office and uh, and my banking news colleagues say, hey, we actually have robo counsel now. But uh, until then, I guess we're safe. Um, um, but we do have a robo co-counsel in a lot of respects because what was done by junior associates for days, hours, weeks in terms of document review has been been replaced by predictive coding and scanning of documents. And I would say that the junior lawyers are very thankful that somebody <laughs> or a machine is doing that and they aren't and that then they are uh, have a different role in terms of reviewing the documents. And what we have found, of course, is that that element of predictive coding is actually more accurate than the human review itself. Well, sure. And I think that 
Yeah, I think exactly what you've said. Um, if nothing else, that frees up junior lawyers to work on different tasks and to um, help the team in other ways because um, things that used to be relegated to juniors is now uh, the purview of a robot that can handle it in probably a couple hours. Exactly. Um, one more thing that I wanted to ask about, Claudia, before we um, shift a little bit from strictly uh, the, um, the, the lawyering side of things. Um, I understand that before this role, you had actually uh, gone out on your own for a bit and that you were doing uh, some arbitrator work. Um, can you tell us about the, the decision one to go do that? And then what was that experience like? So at the end of 2020, I left Latham and Watkins and launched my independent arbitrator practice. And I will continue as an independent arbitrator while serving as the president of the ICC court, just not as an arbitrator in any ICC cases. Sure. Uh, so I have been fortunate or had fortunate over the last few years to handle a wide variety of cases as arbitrator while I was counsel, uh, including emergency arbitrator, you know, sole co-arbitrator and chair and even, and although I had to turn down so many uh, appointments because of conflicts in a large firm. Sure. So I had a few appointments that I brought with me into my independent practice. And since the beginning of the year have also gotten a couple of additional cases and they're just incredibly interesting and uh, very glad to have that opportunity uh, to serve in that role. Sure. And I mean, I think it's informative as well for my future role as the president of the ICC court to continue to be, have a role in, in arbitration uh, on a regular basis and not just looking at it from the institutional standpoint. Well, that's right. Um, I think it keeps you, uh, keeps you in the field, like you've just said. And you know, going from law firm to, you know, having your own shop. I mean, I'm sure that there have been uh, at least a couple of differences, right? Uh, what, what have those been like? Well, I went from having this top tier global technology department uh, to having to, you know, figure out all the basics. But fortunately, I had a very good IT consultant work with me. I didn't even have my own laptop and, you know, in a large law firm, we are trained in essence to reach out for help immediately because it's not a good use of our time to try to problem solve. And in fact, there's so much lockdown on our overall system that you really do need the technology department to uh, help you with any changes. So that's probably been the biggest shift. Uh, and and then just figuring out all the basics, like setting up a website, uh, getting a domain name, setting up a good accounting and timekeeping system, sure, <laughs> uh, and all the other methods for making sure I'm keeping everything on track. Sure, um, and all of that makes sense. You know, the difference between setting up your own business versus working at a business, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, to, to those listeners out there that might be thinking of taking a similar path to whether it's hanging out their own shingle as a lawyer or 
or starting a, their own solo practice as an arbitrator, uh, what 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 are a couple of things they should keep in mind or they should think about before making that leap of faith? The first is to talk to lots of people who are independent arbitrators and find out what they have done. And I really benefited from so many tips and uh, bits of information that other arbitrators provided, whether it was particular software they used or systems they have in place for managing their cases. Uh, I would say that it takes time to go down that runway of getting appointments. And so if one is launching an independent arbitrator practice after working as a judge or after uh, some other career, there ha you have to recognize that it takes time to get on various panels and begin to be known as somebody that people would want to appoint. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, and it's something that I guess one can begin thinking about, but may not actually execute for, for years until they start actually considering that a possibility. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think your answer actually very nicely segues into the next question I had for you, Claudia. And that is, you know, as you make this, uh, you know, hit this new milestone in your career and um, as you take on your new role, I wonder, as you look back at the career that you've developed, who were some of, of the mentors or role models or sort of influences that sort of guided you or influenced your path? Well, certainly Mark Nadeau, who was the head of litigation in Phoenix, who introduced me to the world of international arbitration, was a key mentor of mine. Uh, but he was a mentor in a lot of other ways, too. Uh, I remember when one of the other associates on our team sent an email to opposing counsel instead of local counsel, Oh, no. on a case that <laughs> revealed our strategy. And when the you know mistake was revealed, there was that moment of panic. But what Mark did was just solve the problem. And I remember going down the elevator with him right after kind of that moment of panic and uh, flurry of subsequent communications and I said, I can't believe you didn't get angry. Um, and his response to me has stuck with me for so long to this day, which was, we are only a product of our experiences. And for me, I've just kept that in mind to say, whenever something happens, which invariably it does, hopefully not at that level on a regular basis. The only thing you can do is fix it and then move forward. Yeah, no, that, that's profound advice. And I think um, if we are honest and transparent, all of us have had a similar moment of, you know, that maybe not that exactly, but have done something similarly uh, sort of uh, embarrassing. And it's in those moments, uh, the the guidance of leadership can be critical. So that that's a great lesson. Absolutely. 
Um, here's a fun question. What are you reading right now? What book? What books have you got? Yeah, uh, I am reading and highly recommend uh, Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar's book, You'll Never Believe What Happened to Lacey, uh, Crazy Stories About Racism. Mm. Uh, that, uh, and if you haven't watched Amber Ruffin uh, and her show, she was on uh, Seth Meyers and now has her own show, I really recommend it. Uh, the book is funny, but it is profoundly heartbreaking to hear the daily or regular experiences that her sister has uh, in terms of the things people say and the things they do that are profoundly racist. But they have a great way of telling these stories that let us know what's actually happening. Uh, in that regard, uh, I just finished How to Be an Anti-Racist, which is by Ibram Kendi. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, it's a great one. I also just started and I, uh, Women and Leadership, which I'm excited about because that's written by uh, Julia Gillard, who's the former prime minister of Australia, but also, and I will mispronounce this name, uh, Ngozi Akanju-Iwilia, the new uh, head of the World Trade Organization. Absolutely. Um, uh, so I, I expect that book is going to have uh, good information for me. Uh, on, on a much lighter note, I'm reading uh, The Bonjour Effect, uh, which hopefully will give me some insight to uh, the French uh, and French as I make my way to Paris. Well, sure. No, I mean, and that you've just said, uh, given a lot of interesting points there, um, you know, for the for the our spinoff show, Disputes Digest, we'd actually written the script uh, yesterday um, and then we saw the announcement for the WTO um, news. And so we have to certainly, you know, you can't just talk about, oh, here's the news for the week. Oh, what what else happened? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Major news and very exciting. That's right. And, and I know uh, the ICC generally, uh, the uh, broad ICC uh, really welcomes her appointment. That, that's absolutely and justifiably so. Um, you mentioned also that um, as you make your way to uh, to Paris, um, do you already speak French? Are you learning French or what, what is that process like? I do not already speak French. I'm in the midst of trying to learn some French. i have uh, taking intensive French lessons uh, each day. Uh, so hopefully I have some better skills than I had before. Well, sure. And you've already got bonjour. So, I mean, that's, that's a start. <laughs> exactly. What else do I need? <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, what kind of music do you like? Or do you have any favorite artist? My music tastes are definitely eclectic. Uh, I love like, the national and arcade fire, but I can just as easily listen to Stevie Wonder, or the B-52s, or Beyonce oh, wow. uh, on an airplane when I took airplanes. <laughs> right. I, needed to, uh, I would listen to Leonard Cohen, uh, a wide variety of violin concertos. Uh, but, you know, I grew up uh, in the uh, new wave world. 
Yeah, you know, on the music front and um, listeners and followers of the show will know that I've mentioned this several times now, but I have to mention it one more time. Um, recently, a, a music historian was able to sort of compile the entire record collection of James Baldwin um, into a 32-hour playlist. <laughs> and so it's just got all this fantastic um, sort of jazz and a little bit of rock and, you know, all of the things that that was this sort of larger than life figure sort of distilled into this playlist. And so I've been working my way through that since the end of 2020. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, we talk a little bit about, or we've talked a decent amount about life during COVID. And typically this would be the point in the interview where I, I'd ask uh, my guests, how do you maintain your, your physical and mental well-being um, during normal life? Well, normal's not so normal anymore. What are some of the things that you do to sort of keep physically and mentally in sync or in balance during uh, these times called COVID? Yeah. Well, I am a Pilates devotee. Okay. <laughs> I've uh, uh, been taking Pilates lessons from the same teacher for over 16 years, and we made the transition to remote lessons. So I have my Pilates lessons over Zoom and I'm a relatively new cyclist. Uh, Peloton so, or? I'm sorry? Are you doing Peloton or are you like out, actually outside on a bike? <laughs> uh, well, in this cold weather, I have not been outside, but when typically it's above freezing, then I will be outside on a bike. Uh, I will ride a, my bike on a train or two inside, uh, but uh, outdoor cycling is much more fun. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't a lawyer or if you hadn't taken the arbitration path? What, what would uh, Claudia Solomon's alternative career have been? Well, maybe I'd be a bike racer, except for I'm so slow that it's a good thing I'm a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, Claudia, we've got just a couple more questions here. Um, if you were approached, and I say that, well, I say if, because we, I guess it's technically hypothetically again, but when you're approached by a current student or a recent graduate or someone looking to get into the field of international arbitration or dispute resolution, what advice would you give them? I would say have plan B. <laughs> but what I really mean on that is they probably got to where they are because they were so good at setting out a concrete plan of what they were going to do and executing it to a certain point. Uh, you know, people get into college and law school because they're able to write those essays about what they want to achieve uh, in very concrete ways. But then the life has a way of uh, taking unusual turns. And I would say what you really want to do is be that person who can be open to the new possibilities. And we the, the most interesting legal issues are things that we don't know 
about now because if we did they won't be interesting in the future and so if what this pandemic has revealed is the essential need to be able to be not only innovative but pivot and i certainly can say in my own life the most interesting paths or steps have been unexpected but i was willing to take that leap no i think that that that's well said and um and that's good advice I, you know so many so many times folks get so uh enamored and focused on one path that they completely miss that there's tons of other paths to get them where they wanted to be or maybe someplace even better someplace that imagined um okay last two questions let's say it is 5 p.m on a friday and you are somehow completely free for the weekend no calls you know nothing on the docket how would you spend that ideal weekend and just for extra fun let's assume no more covid i would definitely go for a, a very long bike ride <laughs> no that's fair that's fun um long bike rides i go for walks myself here um and so those are those can be nice um any shout outs you want to give anyone listening at home that you want to um give a tip of the cap to i would give a tip of the cap to alexi moore as the current president of the icc court uh i'm so grateful for the warm and supportive comments that he has made on my selection as the new icc court president and he has done uh, or really focused on essential aspects of improving icc arbitration and essential developments for gender diversity in international arbitration well, that's great. Um, it's interesting that you uh, give that shout out because as you are exiting the digital studio, he will be coming in. Uh, he's actually the next guest. <laughs> oh, great. Um, but, but I think that's well said. And uh, we'll give a shout out to Alexi. I'm not sure if he's on LinkedIn. If he's on LinkedIn, we'll tag him. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, all right. Well, on that note, uh, Claudia, as it always happens, uh, the hour has kind of flown by. Thank you so much for stopping by the studio. My pleasure. I am Claudia Solomon, and there is no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Great. Thank you. And we will see y'all next time. Just like that, episode one of season three is in the books. A... I swear, every time we have one of these conversations, I'm amazed that this show used to be 30 to 45 minutes because of how quickly the time flies. I hope you got a lot out of that conversation. I know I come away from it with a buzz of excitement about the things that Claudia has in store for the ICC and keeping in mind some of the ideas we discussed, like client-focused service on dispute resolution. No matter what type of role you're in, we all have our clients in some way or another, and thinking about how we meet their needs and meet their expectations is something that will help all of us take our practices to the next level. So I'm interested to see how that will be done at the ICC going forward. The things that make you go, hmm. In any case, that's this week's episode. 
Next week, we have Claudia's predecessor, Alexi Moore, stopping by the studio. Another conversation you won't want to miss. Beyond that, Mandy, Shvinya, and I are back at it for season two of Arbitration Idol. How has it already been a year since we did the first one? We're looking forward to creating an even better experience this year and to raise funds for those in need. So keep your eyes open for the event to kick off sometime this summer. If you have any comments or feedback for the show or something you'd like to hear on the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com or swing by the talesofthetribunal.com website to connect with me and see what's coming next. Today's show was produced by Maurice Campbell. Show music was done by Jaden and Joshua Campbell. Disputes Digest assistants are Ramatulahi Jalo and Matthew Cothran. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And remember, you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality.